You're listening to The Slam, a National Club Golfer podcast. Without him, the famous little trophy might be gathering dust in someone's attic. It's not an exaggeration to say Tony Jacklin transformed the Ryder Cup. As Europe's talisman, he captained a rejuvenated continent to victories in 1985 and 87, retained the prize with a draw in 89, and began to turn what had been a tired and jaded exhibition into one of the world's biggest team competitions. Those fervid crowds at Whistling Straits a few weeks ago, The thunderclap that rocked Paris from Titanic stands in 2018. Would any of that have been possible were it not for Jacqueline and a collection of improbably talented golfers in the 1980s? Now the architect of an age of European dominance in the biennial event has put down his experiences in a new book, Tony Jacqueline, My Ryder Cup Journey. He's our guest this week on the Slam podcast. Tony, welcome to the NCG podcast. Thank you. Uh, nice to be with you. First of all, congratulations on the book, Tony Jacklin, My Ryder Cup Journey. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible read. Um, I, I always say I can tell how good a book is by how quick it takes someone to read it. And I whiz through this. It's a, it's, it's a really, really good read. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy you enjoyed it. We, we had fun doing it and... Uh... It took up a lot of uh, down. We were locked down, and uh, I was doing a few podcasts. And, and uh, you know, Tony Hemmings said, "Well, why don't we do a book?" I said, "Well, I'm not doing anything." So we got stuck in, and uh, as I say, we had uh, a lot of fun with it. Yeah. We'll get into some little parts of the book in due course, but it's the thing that struck me about it is it's an incredibly honest book. I mean, you really lay some parts of your life bare in it. Yeah, well, you know, I really don't have anything to hide, basically. It was, uh, you know, it's all, my life's all sort of out there. Um, I've lived it uh, in front of uh, everybody. Um, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been an interesting journey, the, uh, adventure, I suppose you could call it, uh, you know, one way or another with... Uh, moving from the UK for tax purposes and going to live in Jersey and then ultimately in Spain and, uh, uh, you know, then really burning out at golf uh, early on, uh, having to sort of take a break away from it. Uh, uh, It was about the only thing I did that made me unhappy, so I stopped doing it. And then, you know, having to come back and uh, play some senior golf, which uh, was uh, was also, uh, and, uh, which then, you know, uh, ultimately got me living here in America, which uh, where I've been for the, uh, nearly 30 years now. So it's it's been an interesting uh, journey and uh, hopefully we captured that uh, or parts of it um, in, in the book. Well, before I take you back into the um, distant past, let's go back a couple of weeks to the uh, last Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. 
obviously a dominating victory for the Americans. What did you make of events there and, and what do you think about Europe going forward? Yeah, well, you know, clearly the best team uh, won. I mean, we were, I mean, I think it's fair to say we, we weren't really ever in it. I mean, uh, we lost every series. I mean, you, you know, from their end, it, they were very strong. Uh, six, six captains picks uh, he had and uh, picked young men, you know, youthful players who were full of vim and vinegar. Um, we uh, we were we were outgunned essentially, and uh, I think uh, we need uh, we need an infusion of uh, of young players. We need some of these young European players to step up to the plate, and uh, I think probably the next captain, whoever he may be, ought, ought to consider uh, you know more picks. Um, as well, uh, you know, I think it's. Uh, I remember the great Peter De Bruyne when I was captain back. You know, he was a great writer and a good, uh, good friend of mine. He said, you know, let him pick all twelve. What the hell? He's not going to pick his relations, his brother. But you, I wouldn't quite go that far. But I mean, I think Stricker covered his back by having as many picks as he did, and. Uh, there's always been a sort of reticence to do that on the European end. I mean, they, there's a sort of uh, underlying, they, they like to think that if a guy plays well enough, he can play his way into the team. I, all I can say is as a captain, past captain, when, when, it, it, when the gun goes off, you need to know that you've got the 12 best players available to you because, uh, it's always going to be tight and uh, but I think there were a few other factors you know in fact we we uh, our supporters couldn't travel that sort of thing didn't didn't help uh, the golf course uh, Pete died it was quite penal uh, we we never saw much terrible weather but uh, uh, it, it, it was uh, there was there was nothing in the golf course that was an advantage to them or, or one side or the other. I didn't believe, and uh, as I say, we were just uh, outplayed. And I think we need to. Uh, I, I do think we need as uh, a captain. He could push it to six uh, six picks if he wanted, and uh, but we need. We need youth to step up to the plate. You know, we have too many players of our players, you know, whether it's Casey, Paul, to Westwood, all in their forties, all been, and, and Sergio. I mean, Sergio had a great week again, but uh, you know, these guys are age wins in the end and uh, we need uh, new blood in there. Yeah, there's always recency bias um, when, Europe lose a Ryder Cup because it hasn't happened very often um, in, in recent decades. Do you feel looking at that American team that um, people, the fears that people have about a period of US dominance that might rival the 70s? I mean, do you worry about that or do you think actually the talent is there in Europe? Well, I think, I think 
you know, like match play itself, uh, these things ebb and flow. I mean, you get you're going to get periods where dominance. Uh, we've we've just coming off one. I mean, Europe is so. You know, who's to say it can't go uh, the other way? I mean, Harrington, I saw the other day. Was, he says, "Well, America's learned all our secrets now." Uh, you know, and they put them into action. Well, you know, good golf is good golf, and passion is is passion. I, I do think there's a. I do think that the Americans have have, have uh, learned a bit more about team than they knew uh, twenty years ago, maybe or uh, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, going into this thing, uh, I saw Kepka, you know, was a bit uh, negative. You know, he, he made comments that, oh, I've got to change my my attitude and schedule. And I wasn't sure. It didn't seem sure he wanted to do that. But um, uh, I, I think it's well accepted now that uh, the Ryder Cup week is, is ultra special for the players and the uh, the camaraderie that you uh, and, and and sense of team that you experienced during that week is is unsurpassed in, in in your career as an individual. You know, as an individual, you you achieve and you shrug. Yeah, I did that, and I won three three of these and seven of those. But uh, the, the the passion that you experience uh, fighting shoulder to shoulder with teammates is. Uh, is altogether different. Yeah, we'll uh, come back to the Ryder Cup in due course, but I want to focus on um, some of the aspects of your book that regard your career, because as much as the book is called your Ryder Cup journey, my Ryder Cup journey, it, there's also quite a lot about your career as a player in there. And um, one of the striking stories that gripped me actually was the the treatment that you received on the American tour when you started to win. Um, and the reaction of some of the players to you after you won particularly in 1968 and then um, after you won at Hazeltine in the US Open in 1970. How difficult a period was that for you? I mean, I get I get the sense you're quite a strong-willed character through the book, but when you've got players who essentially won't talk to you because they believe you're a threat, that must be quite a, that must have been quite a difficult time. Yeah, there were, yeah. I mean... Uh... Yeah, it's a long time ago now, but there were a number of mean-spirited individuals uh, out on this tour, American tour, that uh, you know didn't didn't embrace foreign players, as we would call them. I think we're referred to as internationals now, but we were very much foreign in those days, and it wasn't just me uh, that was experiencing it. You know the. Uh, Colleagues of mine, uh, Bruce Devlin from Australia, Bruce Crampton from Australia, Harold Henning, Gary Blair from South Africa, obviously, all uh, outsiders as far as the US tour was concerned. And uh, yeah, we run into, um, you know, some of this uh, bad feeling from, from Americans who somehow believed that American dollars were just for American competitors. and. Uh, but they were the guys that, that didn't travel, you know, they weren't worldly, they weren't well-rounded out, in my view. Uh, the Nicholases and the Palmers and the Trevinos and the Weisskopfs and the like, uh, you know, who travelled and uh, saw the world 
were, were encouraging, you know, their attitude was if you think you can play, you know, come, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, which was a, you know, a, a, obviously a more sporting uh, front they put on it. But uh, some of those guys did make life uh, tough. You know, the Dan Sykes, and he's long gone to this world now. Gardner Dickinson, they were, they were tough. I mean, uh, I I used to see my name drawn next to theirs, and I I, I thought twice about whether I wanted to turn up or not, and. and Many's a time I went round and they never uttered a word. You know, good shot, good nothing, good morning. Um, and of course, uh, I was determined during that whole period not to not, not to stoop down that far. I mean, if they hit a good shot, I would say good shot. And uh, but it, it 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 toughens you up or helps toughen you up mentally. I mean, and and of course, anybody that knows golf or competitive golf knows that the mental aspect of it is um, by far and away the most important. And uh, I think I was down on paper saying the softest thing about me in those days was my teeth. Um, I learned to be as, you know, uh, as soon as I walked on that first tee, I was, I was mentally ready. And, uh, but, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's all about learning. And uh, as I say, I think it actually, their, their attitude, the, the bad boys, if you like, uh, helped help toughen me up. Yeah. Do you think in hindsight, you've had enough credit for winning the US Open at Hazeltine in 70? I mean, it was a dominating performance on a golf course where there was carnage for a lot of the fields, particularly on that first day when the wind is up. And you, and you won it pretty comfortably in the end from the rest of the field. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't as easy as it looked. No. But, uh, you know, I, I was as nervous as I've ever, ever been. But I think in that, at that period, I think golf was, uh, uh, you know, I'm still the only European to have held both the US and British Opens together uh, because there was very few European world-class players back in, in that time. Um, and no, I mean, I never won a BBC Sportsman of the Year or anything like that for, for my efforts. I think uh, Peter Dimmock, it was, uh, uh, he was the head of the BBC back there 50 odd years ago. He was a tennis buff and uh, golf didn't, you know, we couldn't get on television. Prior to wireless, and you know, when to, to we only ever had the last three holes of our tournaments on on TV. Uh, they used to have to lay miles of cable to 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 just those three holes. Um, and now, of course, one of them wireless changed everything. But uh, the big problem for us back then is us, we we just couldn't get, uh, and that was the same in America. You know. Uh, Three holes was about all you were ever going to get at golf, and uh, in, in that respect, it became it was a minority sport because you, it wasn't a spectacle that football is, or uh, you know some of these other games. Yet it remains the only game that you can play alongside your heroes uh, today. So it, it's all flipped around, and um, of course, I don't have to tell you the kind of money these uh, 
modern day pros are playing for, and it's in large part because of uh, of television. And and you were convinced at that period as well, weren't you? Right in the book that that period from about Lytham obviously winning the Open in 69 to, to sort of 71, 72, that you believed you were the best player in the world at that point? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's arguable, obviously, but uh, uh, I mean, my, my mental... I made a commitment to myself to, in my teens that if I was going to try and do this, I wanted to be as good as I could possibly be, and that was to be the best in the world, but there was, there was, uh, you know, no, uh, no system in place at the time that, but uh, I, I had my share of, uh, of, of, of glory. I didn't think, uh, you know, I'd beat Nicholas on a number of occasions, Palmer on a number of occasions. And uh, it was, uh, I was as good as there was out there uh, during that, in that time. And I was, I was um, I was never content uh, about it, but I was I was being you know I think it, in the book it sort of uh, we indicate that uh, it's not just about being up there and uh, being that number one. It's 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 staying there, and uh, I didn't know as much about. Um, to, uh, pacing myself as I should, I didn't have the advice I should have had. You know, my dad was a keen golfer, but he wasn't a businessman. I didn't have anybody really close to me, other than Mark McCormack, who was, uh, uh, you know, a manager. He, he wasn't. I learned uh, as we got further into our relationship that it was never about me. It was always about him and. Uh, so, you know, you're trusting people that you wouldn't always want to trust. And uh, I was learning as I was going, I was flying by the seat of my pants and, and mistakes were made. Um, but, um, you know, that's life. You've got to be able, you've got to be able to pick yourself up and, and soldier on. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's never all plain sailing. And certainly my life wasn't. It was uh, a roller coaster. Yeah, let's uh, move on to the Ryder Cup. Um, and and I, I can't have a chat with you, Tony, without talking at least briefly about the concession um, at Birkdale in 69. I mean, it's 52 years ago, if my maths are right. And um, can you believe that um, a moment that took a second, essentially, um, is still as revered now? Um, I mean, it's in Ryder Cup legend now. We've just had the... Um, We've just had the Nicholas Jacqueline Award at Whistling Straits. I mean, more than half a century later, this moment is still revered, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah I know. It was a remarkable, yeah, few seconds, as you say, that it, it indelibly sort of stamped on, on uh, certainly Ryder Cup anyway. But uh, uh, sportsmanship and, uh, you know, the spirit that we played in, it was... It was never a war for, for, for Jack and I, you know, Jack, I never had much of an amateur career, but Jack did. And he, he learned a lot about golf during his amateur years. And he was a tremendous sport because of it. I had the good fortune of playing with his father, Charlie, in the late sixties up in, uh, at Scioto Golf Club in, in Ohio. And, uh, 
you know, he instilled um, a, a lot into Jack early on uh, about the way the game should be played. And uh, I, I certainly uh, believe that I tried to approach it in a, in a similar manner, you know. I mean, if you can't look your opponent in the eye at the end of a, a day's golf and shake his hand, uh, uh, then we've been wasting a lot of our time. And uh, I think the concession encapsulated that, that, uh, you know, we'd played all day. I, I nipped him in the morning uh, that year and, and, and ultimately, you know, the, our, all our teammates were around that 18 screen and to do what he did was... Um, was was in, incredible and it, it showed a lot of things not just sportsmanship but how well he, he he managed things under pressure mentally uh he knew that america would retain it uh he just didn't want to see anything happen to spoil uh, my open when which had been two months earlier you know britain had a a new champion and he didn't want to see anything happen to uh, to spoil that, but uh, it was it was great, and uh, the fact that we we built a golf course over here in Florida to memorialise it that turned out uh, uh, incredibly well. And then um, we've been there on a number of occasions together, celebrating different aspects of Ryder Cup and uh, and and golf itself. So yeah, it's all positive, all good, uh, nice memories. Looking ahead to what you did as, as captain um, in the 1980s, do you think you could have achieved what you did without going through those, I mean, to put it frankly, pastings in the 1970s, you know, those heavy defeats? You must. It, it seemed to me that you learned an awful lot from the way that the Ryder Cup was approached in the 70s, whether that be from, you know, from the way that the players were treated to how you put pairings together, could you take the positive out, out of what was essentially for you quite a dispiriting time? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I needed all the pastings. <laughs> we got, we got a, a number of them. Uh, in, my, in my quest to be as good as I could be, I went to America in 67. To, I knew I had to be where the best players were. And I got my card in 67 and played the tour ex more or less exclusively, not totally exclusively, but uh, for five years. And I knew how America did things. I, know how, I knew how they approached things. As, of course, I knew how, how the UK approached things, Brit Britain. And, and it was uh, different degrees. I mean, uh, there was a sort of... Uh, I don't know, the British approach was, uh, well, you know, let's, we've got the most important thing is to turn up and be good chaps and all the rest of it. And uh, winning was, was down the list. Uh, whereas in America, uh, as one of the great Lombardi, I think it was, Vince Lombardi, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, was the a sort of American approach. And, and I, as I, as I said earlier, I was, I was pretty tough mentally. And once, once we got, once I got into a position where I was able to make a difference, I, I really just uh, took 
the points, uh, you know, I leveled the playing field is, is what I did. And, and the, the response was, uh, was from the players on the golf course. They responded that, the, you know, it was the right time. It was, timing was everything. They knew I was going to do everything I could for them. I couldn't play for them, but I gave them the opportunity to play the best. I leaned on the on the major winners. I I, I did. I told them they wouldn't get much rest, you know. During uh, I had to do that. Uh, uh, I told apparently I told players on the way over here on the plane that they might not play till Sunday. You know. I, but it, whatever I did was all about uh, about team, and I got an amazing positive response from from the players. They played their hearts out, and uh, it was. It, it, I mean, one of the great performances, actually, if not well, one of the really great performances was '83, the first year I did it. I didn't have a captain's pick because they, they they approached me so late because they were arguing behind the scenes as who, who should be captain. And I, I just took the top, you know, 12 money winners, but to go as close as we did within a single point out of oblivion, I mean, out, out of nowhere uh, was an amazing uh, point. And, 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 and uh, it, it was amazing Ryder Cup and, and if you ever have to go, you know, sometimes you have to go that close. We were completely gutted that way that we didn't get it done. And of course it was Sebi that said, you know, hey, this, this is not a, a loss, it's a victory. If you look at our past history, I mean, uh, this is the best we've ever done in America. And of course it was, and, and we were able to use it positively, uh, well, up and, un, until today. Um, now we're we're not we're not likely to let things slip back as far as as they were back back in uh, in 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 the seventies. Uh, now, so we need some of these young lads to uh, to step up to the plate and uh, know what it's like to um, play for your country and you you know uh, play for Europe. Yeah. I think um, most listeners or readers of the book will be pretty familiar with um, your demands, I, I would say, for the to, for the, your team to have the best of everything, the best bags, the best clothes to fly on Concord. I, I don't think a lot of people would know that you invented the team room, um, which given, given how important the team room is, I mean, the team room always has mythical status now, doesn't it, in, in Ryder Cups. Um, but but that was essentially your idea, and 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 secondly, you also protected the format of the event, didn't you? After you won in '85, I think it was, and and you re, you recount in the book how um, they they tried to change the format. I mean, just tell me about those two things because I think they're both pretty important to what the Ryder Cup has become. No, they they were very important as far as I was concerned. I mean. I remember through the 70s, you know, when when it came to knowing who you were going to be paired with and what time you were going to play, what position you were going to play in the following day, the captain would gather us together in the locker room and, uh, you know, you were with him and your first day out and so on. This is how we got to know, you know, 
what what was going to happen uh, the, the 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 next day, and then we were free to go out with our partners and wives uh, to a local restaurants, uh, you know, either alone or you know, or, or pairing up with another couple just as friends, but it wasn't conducive to creating team spirit and. Uh, so the team room was in my mind. Uh, I, you know, I wanted everybody to have everything they needed there, you know, food and beverage wise, uh, you know, whether it's fish, pasta, meat, whatever they wanted. Why would they want to go anywhere else? TVs everywhere, uh, you know, just a, a place to, to, to gather and, and, and nurture some team spirit. And obviously uh, they embraced that big time and uh, it became, well, nobody wanted to be anywhere else. And it was back in those days, I'm sure it's got uh, watered down a bit, but literally players and the wives were the only ones in there. The caddies weren't uh, allowed in, I'm pretty sure these days. Uh, you know, it's, uh, if you're on the European end of things, you can, you can stick your head in the team room. But uh, no, that was uh, that was a biggie. That was uh, a real biggie. And the other question you had, yeah, uh, I, I, you 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 were, were very keen in protecting the format, the twenty-eight points uh, as, as we no, have now. Well, that's only because America loves to win, and I, being you know part of the U.S. tour and uh, having as many American friends as I did, I I, I made no. I never made any, uh, when it came to that, you know, they, they just want to win. That's why the President's Cup hasn't gone uh, to four matches the first two days like the Ryder Cup is because they love to win. I think we've only won one President's Cup in, since 1993. That's the, you know, and Nicky Price, when he was captain of the international team, uh, you know, made this suggestion that... Uh, we want it like Ryder Cup, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. And don't hold your breath. I don't think it will. Uh, so I, I knew we had a, a formula, a format that, that worked. Most importantly, Sunday was always uh, the, the big day. And, you know, what you, that's what you, you're looking forward to, that... Uh, it, it all unfolds uh, at the very end. And uh, for the most part, that's how it's been. You segued there very nicely into my next question. So thanks for that. Because you, you did some innovative things as well with Sunday orders. I'm thinking about in 83 when you put Seve up first and he played, I think, Fuzzy Zeller and Jack. And there's a great moment in the book where Jack Nicholas says to you, you can't do that um, because you'd always put the powerhouses at the bottom. And then two years later, you know, um, playing Pinheiro number one, um, when I suppose the Americans there were thinking he's got to put Seve up there first. I mean, you like to play with the order on Sunday. Yeah, I, that was uh, most fun. Because you don't, I, I mean... I wouldn't want to give the impression, that, and, and it never was. We never knew what the opposing captain was going to do, so you couldn't you couldn't fix a match where you know you could guarantee one player. But um, I used to love to shuffle the deck, and uh, you know the first time I, uh, in in '83, I thought, well, what's the use of putting the 
you know, the absolute top players out near the end if you've lost by then. <laughs> you know, they're, they're wasted. You need... So I flipped it, and that was... Uh, I can remember Jack and I both opening our envelopes and, and showing Joe Black, who was the president of the PJ of America at the time, that list, and that's when Jack blurted out, you can't do that. <laughs> it's sort of... Uh, uh, it wasn't trickery, it was just uh, uh, a different slant on things. And then I put the power in the middle some some of the time, you know, and uh, it was, uh, that was a lot of the fun. And Panero, when, when, as you say, I put him out to first in 85 and, and Jack put Lenny Watkins out in that number one spot. I mean, Panero jumped four feet in the air on the spot. I mean, he, and of course, he went out and and beat Lanny, who was the cockiest uh, devil you ever met in your lifetime. And just to know, for the rest of the players to know that he had achieved that, the ripple effect of, of the, the confidence that they gained from uh, Manuel, who was a lovely man, uh, winning that was uh, was very, very special. Yeah, it's horses for courses, isn't it? You say in the book that Manuel was a formidable match player, and that, and that you knew that that is that was the type of thing that would motivate him essentially. Well, I think that you know that's one of the things we. In fact, I know we, uh, they poo-poo it over here. You know, they qualify for their matches in large part with stroke play, but this is why captains' picks are are important. I mean, uh, I mean in in. Actually, in America's defense this year, they they, they didn't uh, have uh, Billy Horschel in the team. He won the match play, and he won at Wentworth the week before. So, you know, that was somebody that they could just as easily have picked as one of the... Um, and, and Kisner is a good match player. You know, I watch golf over here. He's a tenacious match player. So you're always... You want to keep your options open, in my view, in my view, uh, so that you can you can pick a match player. The, the, the difference between uh, match play and, and stroke play is immense. I mean, you just a, a course as difficult as as uh, Whistling Straits was. You know, you can keep firing at the pins because all you're going to do is lose a hole. You're not going to make a ten. If you know, because it'd be over before ten comes up, uh, but you might make a three by going, you know, um, going for par fives in two and so on and so forth. So it's a it's a gambler's game, match play, and uh, whereas stroke play is is uh, a careful. You've got to you, you, you carefully go about things. You can't be rambunctious. You've got to be just calm and. And um, two totally different games. Yeah, I, I, I'm always interested in how you got those partnerships to work. I mean, obviously you had the big five, um, but you but you brought Seve and Paul Way together, for example, and then later on you brought Faldo and Woosnam together, pairings that that people would not necessarily have thought would work, but they did. I mean, Faldo and Woosnam worked spectacularly, as did that, that one year. It did, but they they run out of something. You know, uh, the, the, 
I'm, I was a great watcher of body language and chemistry between players, you know, in practice rounds especially. I mean, in Sebi's case, Sebi was very difficult to partner because most of his teammates were in awe of him. And, and you know, in that regard, he, he, he stifled the way that they played or wanted to play. Paul Way was sort of 20 years old. He, he thought at that point in time he was going to be the better than Seve, I'm sure. And he wasn't intimidated. I could see it. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of the funniest stories of all time. I thought the second day in the afternoon, I, one of the Spanish officials came to me and he said, Seve's not happy. And he referred to Paul as this boy, you know, because I was having this one-on-one -on -one with him. And... And I said, Sebi, you know, you're playing with him because uh, he says, I feel like his father. I said, you are. You know, that's why you're together. You, you, you work. And, and uh, of course, uh, I said, is that a problem? And he said, for me, it's no problem. And they went out and beat Tom Watson and Bob Gilder in the afternoon of that second day. And, you know, it was, it was magic to see it. But it, you know, it wasn't the same after that. It became the same when he got Alasabelle as his partner. And uh, they lasted uh, a number of years, of course, uh, the two of those. But you're looking for that magic that uh, one player switching another player on uh, for whatever reason, showing off, uh, you know, whatever the reaction is. and. Um, I remember Trevino poo-pooing that whole, um, you know, that whole uh, uh, way of thinking. You know, he had this, he came in, in 85 with all this sort of supreme confidence that the American captains had had in the 70s. And, you know, you, you, together, smack them on the butt and, you know, go and, uh, go and get it done. Um, because uh, it wasn't quite as easy for, for me as, as, as that. And, and I was looking for, you know, I was looking at all these uh, options and uh, um, chemistry is a very big part of team. The two of you, um, yourself and Sevi, are going to be forever entwined, I think, in this competition because you essentially convinced him to come back and play. And then he was your talisman, really, wasn't he? Throughout oh, yeah. that period. I mean, you must have incredibly warm memories of that time that you spent together. Oh, I do. I mean, that, uh, that breakfast we had at... Uh, Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport, uh, not long after I'd accepted the captain's job, was, uh, was you'd have loved to be, <laughs> been a fly on the wall at that. I tell you, any pressman would have given his right arm to be part of that conversation. And, and, and essentially it was, you know, we, we were both teed off with the establishment, the approach, and, uh, you know, he'd been let down or felt let down. Uh, wasn't about winning. They weren't concerned about winning. It was all this other, other stuff that was getting in their way. And because uh, of the two of us had great self-belief, I think I believed that you know 
it was possible to make this, uh, you know, competition we could win. And, and obviously, Seve was a winner from start to finish in his, in his life. And he was very proud. And he was, you know, he was hurt by what happened in 81, being left out. And um, so uh, that conversation was, um, I, I never forget, you know. In the end, his, his English wasn't so good in, in those days. And he said, OK, I help you. That that I the Spanish I help you, and I'll never forget it. And I said, "That's that bit done." Then now we can focus on positive things for all time. And of course, he was, you know, through the years, little stuff. Uh, you know, going into the team room, I could take him to one side, you know, give him give him a shoulder rub, give and tell him how well you think he's swinging. You know, whatever it was, he was happy to 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 put a positive slant on everything because um, it was it was magic. It was a magical time. Uh, you know, of, often it's uh, it's the journey, isn't it? That, that that they say is the satisfying thing, not the victory ultimately. But victory is sweet, obviously, but the journey is is special too, you know, when you think of all the moments that go into, uh, uh, and the effort that goes into to, to, to winning and disappointments and, and, you know, the ups and downs, it, it's, uh, the journey is, uh, is, is the special, special end of it all. You're concerned about the future of golf, aren't you? I think the book makes that very clear. You, know, you, you say that golf has become boring for me and I have little interest in watching it on television. There's, there's two chief concerns that you have, isn't there? One, one, one that's, um, that's slightly uh, less than the other, one over some of the rules changes that have been made. Um, but, but your main concern is over distance. I mean, you are very much in the rollback camp, aren't you? Oh, very much. You know, I've been for... 20 years but uh, you know nobody's obviously nobody's listening and have been monitoring the USGA have said that's as far as they've gone uh, monitor and uh, you know these guys are hitting wedges and nine nines into 11 holes around I mean that's why you've seen 61s and if the weather's good at St Andrews next year you'll see 59s and 58s uh, no, no question about it, but they, you know, the, the technology was supposed to be f to help amateurs. <laughs> Pros didn't need the help of uh, um, technology. You know, you look, uh, and the whole thing's fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating. I don't expect everybody to see it the way I do, but uh, the older I've got, the more I realise, you know, uh, uh, I know how hard it was in the 60s, uh, hitting four irons, well, US Open at, at Hazleton. I was hitting four irons and uh, five irons and three irons into par fours. Uh, you know, couldn't get up on par fives in two. And, um, so the older I've got and, and the more, you know, I think we one of the interesting uh, things for me in the in the book, and the older I get, the more I think Hogan was probably the best player uh, ever. Um, 
you know, I, I got to play with him once, but uh, I, he was, if I ever had a hero, I mean, it would have been him. I, I took the game up in 53 when he won three of the four majors and didn't play in the other one because he couldn't get there. Uh, and majors prior to uh, Palmer winning the two Opens in the 60s, I think I touched on that in the book, were majors, you know, the likes of Bobby Locke and Hogan and Nelson and Sneed, they weren't, you know, that vital to things. Uh, Sneed and Hogan, either of them, they didn't defend the uh, Open Championship victories. So, but uh, the, the game changed around in the early 60s uh, when Arnold won those two Opens and major championships became uh, be all and end all. Of course, and Jack played, for example, 160 majors. Gary Player played 151, I think it was. Hogan played 27 and won nine. Uh, you know, you look at these statistics and uh, this guy, Bob Drum, who I've mentioned in the book, was a, a, a Palmer disciple from Pittsburgh, I think he was, or certainly from Pennsylvania. And he and his uh, media friends, close media friends, you know, really did go flat out to make the majors it in, in the early 60s. Prior to that, it wasn't it wasn't the case. So, uh, the, the, if you're a historian and, and consider history, it's worth it's worth uh, looking at that and and, and knowing. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, I'm, by saying what I said, I'm not taking anything away from Bobby Jones. It's just uh, I saw Hogan. I never he was the closest thing I ever saw to perfection when when it came to hitting a golf ball and I still study the swing positions and well, today and I still haven't seen anything close to him you know uh, he was it yeah, I mean do, do you fear that um, they say don't they that one generation's superstar is the next generation's norm don't they and I mean do you do you fear that without um, some restrictions on on technology and so on that we might just see a hundred players who all hit the ball 350, for example, and... Yeah, I mean, we've got a good guy now, uh, Mike Wan, who's taken over the number one spot at USGA. He did, did some terrific work for the ladies tour, uh, for the LPGA, before he took up this job. He's only just got his, his feet under the table, as it were. We hadn't, he hasn't had much chance to address some of these issues and I'll be interested to see uh, if he's, 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 if he wants to make a noise about about situations but you know these everybody's got used to playing for massive massive uh, first prizes they don't want to rock that boat uh, 61s and 62s if that's if that's what everybody wants to see. And, you know, the, the main thing for me is the amount of courses that, that became redundant for, for professionals with, with the modern equi equipment. I mean, gems, I mean, around the world, Donald Ross courses, uh, 6,700 yards that you can't go to now 
And, you know, they've sort of, they're just for, for, for amateurs alone and they're building new courses to accommodate equipment. It, it's nonsense as far as I'm concerned, but uh, I'm old. And maybe they're just waiting for geezers like me to die off and they'll keep on doing what they're doing. I don't know. Uh, but the longer it takes, the, the, the less likely it is for them to uh, address uh, things. I mean, the ball is central to, I mean, the ball goes 50 yards further than it did when I played uh, in, in my pomp 50 years ago. So it's just that, it's as simple as that. I mean, uh, but it's the peripheral uh, weighting and aerodynamically it's better. Um, all the rules, I don't know, a water hazard, still a water hazard to me, it's not a penalty area stuff. You can ground your club now. I mean, all of these things, are, I'm not sure the professional game needed, uh, you know, messing with that much. Uh, I still wish they should, they, they, I mean, in baseball, they play with wooden bats. Um, you know, maybe golf should look at playing with the, the old persimmon again. Uh, I wouldn't go that far, maybe, but uh, somebody needs to ad address the thing in a fair manner. Of course, the modern day players have got more to say in in the rule within the rules now than we did. I mean, we we wouldn't dare suggest uh, things. You know, it was the way it was. It was historic the way it was we wanted to do it like Jones did it and and all the rest of it but uh, it, it, the, the rules just seemed to evolve back then but uh, I don't know where it's all going to end up well if um, if we can play the clubs <coughs> I'll sign up for that I would watch that for one or two weeks that that would be absolutely fantastic look Tony for those of us who have a certain age who remember European dominance throughout the 1980s and 90s. Um, I would implore those people to uh, get hold of a copy of your book. Tony Jacklin, My Rider Cup Journey is um, a fantastic read. And thanks, Tony, for joining me on the NCG podcast. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much.